This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is February 14th. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the very thoughtful Simon Belanger. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. Uh, I know you chefed it up for the household yesterday. Uh, what'd you make? Yeah, just uh, fried zucchinis in the air fryer and then uh, baked a pasta dish from scratch. Well, f- the pasta was not from scratch, but everything else was. The followed recipe was, uh, took me a couple hours to do everything, but uh, with some red wine was really good. And we'll have enough to uh, eat for a few days in front of us. So that's always good when you don't have to prep some food and uh, can just take care of your uh, little one. You're six months old. Yeah. Next year, if you're looking for a third wheel, that sounds delicious. I'll uh, I'll be over for Valentine's Day. Uh, today, we have a fun show. You're going to talk about two interesting surveys that came out from BMO. There's I got a checklist. Everyone loves investing checklists. So I got something about pricing power. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about dieting and fitness and the analogies between it and personal finance and investing. I think you'll uh, I think you'll like that segment. All right, you want to kick us off here with what you got on the slate? Yeah, so the first one is actually the older survey of the two. So this one was done in January 2022. The other one that we'll talk about was a more recent one on, amongst other things, what people think they need in order to retire, the balance. But the first one here was done on TFSA and RSPs. And BMO actually does a survey every year. It's not always the same thing. I think it's slightly different in terms of the questions they ask, but really interesting. We'll kind of go with what some of the stuff we talked about in the past in terms of Canadian not Canadians not fully understanding um, whether it's the tax-free savings account or the RRSP or even the RESP, but I'll focus on the uh, TFSA and RRSP for this segment here. Now, cash is still king in the TFSA. That's what they found. So 56% of the respondents with a TFSA have cash in it, while 29% said that cash makes up at least 75% of their TFSA holdings, which is pretty alarming because this survey was done last year when interest rates were quite low. So essentially people have money in their TFSA, pretty substantial amounts, and they're not really getting any interest on it. 73% of respondents said they considered themselves knowledgeable about TFSA. However, only half of them were aware that the TFSA can hold both cash and at least one other type of investment. So either stock, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, etc. So only half of them actually knew that you could hold one of the other investment. Not all of them, just one of them. So it, there's a big discrepancy here in terms of what people think they know and what they actually know. You have anything to add to that part before I continue? No, I mean, I'm not surprised here. It's like... How often does it feel like these two vehicles are just so misunderstood, just generally? Um, and and here we are in 2023 as well. I know it's a 2022 survey, but how how much these numbers have moved? I bet you they haven't budged. No, exactly. So I don't think it, it will have changed much. Obviously, it's uh, they say Canadians for the survey, but I say respondents because obviously there's always a margin of errors for right. surveys. Uh, yeah. But I think it's probably. But, but every bank does this report. Yeah. Uh, or, or I know. R, I know RBC puts it out once a year. 
TD posts something similar with their brokerage accounts, and the numbers are are usually like a percent or two difference between each of the brokerage accounts and the respondents. So I, I think that, you know, overall you can triangulate that as a pretty good representation. Yeah, exactly. And that's what surveys are for, right? It's to get a, a kind of general view without sampling the whole population. Now, the TFSA value grew 13% from 2020 to 2021. Not surprising because obviously the markets were generally depressed in 2020. Like there was still, it still gained back after the pandemic, but 2021 was really the big boom year. So we see this reflected here. The TFSA is used for various financial goals, according to this. 44% use it for retirement savings, 43% use it as a savings account, 15% use it as a means to achieve financial independence as early as possible. Now, the biggest barrier for contributions are lack of funds and other expenses, which came at 73%. Now, 43% using it as savings account. I don't think it's... I think I I get mixed feelings with that because clearly if you do have a lot of room in your TFSA, you're not maxed out and you want to have some investments in it, but also use part of it uh, in cash as a savings account, whether it's money market funds that will pay you close to 5% or something like our sponsor EQ Bank that I think offers 3% at TFSA. I mean, if you have ample room, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think where there's an issue is people using it solely as a savings account. It This blows, I mean, it continues to blow my mind. Yeah. Um, year after year, I, it's the same old story, really. Yeah, and now there was the RSP portion was, you know, much shorter for this survey, but still interesting. So 74% of respondents considered themselves knowledgeable about RSP, but younger respondents, age 18 to 34, were 12% less likely to be knowledgeable about that type of account, which is interesting. However, only 64% knew the difference between a TFSA and an RRSP. And I can actually vouch for that with my work. A lot of people get confused with the two accounts. Some people thinking you can actually, uh, you know, get a tax deduction for TFSA contributions, which you don't. Um, So a lot of people kind of can, you know, mix the two accounts together. And obviously, I talked about the new, I think, home savings account, I can't remember the full name a couple weeks ago. So this one will be a sort of combination for both as long as you meet the requirements. And the last thing here that I thought was interesting is another survey that came out a few weeks ago, like I said. And I'll touch on that survey a bit more because the headlines were $1.7 million is the amount that people think they need to retire. But I thought it was interesting in terms of they have a breakdown per province in and it gives the average amounts held in RSPs and average RSP contributions per year. And, you know, it's pretty much, it's pretty steady, I would say, across Canada. Uh, Quebec and BC are have the two lowest balances at 125000 on average, and Ontario has the highest 163000 if we round up. But the annual contributions, it's... It's very similar on average. I would say Quebec is that laggard here, the clear laggard with 6,000, where every other province is in the 7,000 and even up to 8,000 for the Atlantic regions. And they put Atlantic all together here. I think it was probably just to make it easier. But 
you know, it's not that much money that people have in RSPs. You know, we're thinking probably on average, you know, just on top of my mind like this, about 140 in Canada for people in RSPs. So if you think this includes the broad range of population, it is a little bit alarming that the average is actually that low, especially if you consider people that may be closer to retirement. Yeah, that, that certainly seems concerning. And, it, and of course, it's not the only vehicle, uh, the RSP, in terms of reaching to that number that people are saying they need to get to at 1.7. Whatever the number is, uh, <laughs> the RSP average is clearly quite a lot lower. Um, and I wonder what it would look like on a median basis yeah. as well compared to an average because sure surely there are people with massive you know, tens of millions of dollars <laughs> actually well you, you would hope no one is using their rsp like that because that's actually very tax inefficient to have that much money in their rsp but there are people i'm sure doing it exists yeah. um yeah it definitely exists so that's going to skew up the average even if it doesn't make uh make sense because look no further than 44 percent of uh, 43% of people using their TFSA as a savings account, like with cash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that comes up on the pod so often. It's a, a staggering stat. Yeah, it'd be- one, one question I had for yeah, you was for 40, it says 44% use the TFSA as a retirement account and 15% are using it as a, as a means to achieve financial independence. Those feels very similar to me. I'm, I'm not really sh- What is the difference between that? I mean, you could still be financial independent without being retired, right? So you could be, you know, dependent on, you know, a lot of content creators will probably consider themselves financial independent. So I think the definition varies from people to people. And I think that's the issue with financial independence, right? Some people will never want to retire, even though they have enough money, but they would still consider themselves financial independent. Financially independent. independent. Exactly. Um, So no, it was interesting. I would love to see like the breakdown I gave for RSPs and even TFSA, but by age group. I think that would be really pertinent because at the same time, right, if you're if you're 25 and you have 20,000 your RSP, like you're probably ahead of the curve compared to most people. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's important to. Th- I've done some googling around on that, and it'll sh- it'll show like breakdowns in Canada. I think StatsCan has some stuff as well. Okay. Well, something we so, can look at at uh, on a yeah. future segment. All right. Let's move on to a pricing power checklist. This is from uh, my man Leandro, which is at Invest Quotes on Twitter. He is uh, he's from Spain, and he's a very nice, very nice guy. And I've had the, the pleasure of speaking with him on a couple calls now. And uh, he makes good content on on the Twitter machine. So go ahead and follow him at Invest Quotes. He put out something that is very near and dear to my heart, which is talking about pricing power and and how businesses can maintain pricing power use their sustainable competitive advantages to flex their pricing power, not only on the market, their customers and future customers. And it does a couple of things for the business, but how does someone really determine if a business has true pricing power um, and if they're able to do it for a really long time? So I thought this was an interesting framework and you and I can kind of go back and forth on this. So he says, number one, does the company have high customer retention rates? Um, and so this is not always easy to see depending on the business, but a really good example of this is like 
Costco typically increases their membership dues every five-ish years. They're very due for one right now. And retention rates do not budge when they increase prices. So that would that signals to me uh, an ex- a perfect example of pricing power. Or if you look at uh, Amazon Prime's re- retention rates after they did that fairly significant hike, that was last year or the year before, it didn't really budge. Good example of pricing power. And so really at the end of the day, simplified uh, without the jargon is, if the company improves or increases prices, does that affect the customer's returning? Is that going to churn them away or can they can they flex that over time? Any thoughts? No, no, I think it's good. I mean, the one thought that comes to mind is, you know, companies always, regardless of whatever company you're looking at that has really good pricing power, they always have to know to what extent because at the end of the day, yeah. You know, there is a breaking point, whatever the business is, whether, you know, even if I'm thinking monopolies like an ASML, like, yes, it has pricing power. But if they're selling their systems five, five million, you know, a billion dollar each, I mean, I have a feeling companies will just make do with the uh, deep ultraviolet system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. Cause it won't be viable economically. And same thing goes for you and I, if they're selling $5,000 iPhones, I mean, I guess I'll switch to Android, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 Uh, and perfect example of a company that's continued to flex pricing power is Apple on their iPhones, yeah. but they've, they've tested it over time. They have and people still keep buying them. Um, yeah, they haven't gone just crazy right out of the gate. They've always been a premium price product, but uh, they've been able to test the limits of their pricing power over time. And that's how they produce what, like 100 billion in free cash flow. Uh, so there you go. Uh, number two, does this product make up a low portion of the customer's budget? If a customer spending a large portion of their budget, it's more likely they will be price sensitive. That that's pretty true, right? Like, so you saw a software, uh, a software solution to contractor. Say you're, I'm making some random example on the spot. Say you are a contractor. You build custom homes. So you build custom cabinets for people's kitchens. If you have like some CRM for them to help manage their customers, and it's only like you know five percent of their cost structure, that's not gonna crush them. But if you're pricing it at like 50%, chances are your price increases are going to make are be more and more sensitive to that customer, the bigger percentage of their budget that you take up. Um, that just makes sense, right? Like if I'm selling something to a retail investor, Stratosphere is a retail investor, I can't price it the same way as I'm selling it to an institution because they have completely different budgets. I'm sure there's a million examples we could go with this one. Yeah, well, two that come to mind for people, what they buy, and just as a consumer, I think we've talked about it before, but, you know, your iCloud subscription, that's $1.50. I mean, they can probably raise it you know, 75 or double the price, and most people would not budge an eye because it's, you know, it's just a pain to switch and what's, you know, what's an extra buck fifty or, you know, the, the Buffett investment in Coca-Cola. So it's such, you know, one can of Coke is pretty cheap for most people. You raise the price by 5 or 10%. Uh, I mean, most people will probably not see too much of a, you know, won't think twice about it just because it's not a significant purchase. And these 
points we're talking about are incredibly important during an inflationary environment. And you talked, we talked about this extensively uh, with investing businesses with pricing power when there's a lot of inflation because they're able to handle it. All right, number three, is the product mission critical? If it's something that customers can't live without, it's more likely that they'll have to deal with the price increases. Uh, I think that that's true. You know, if you have a sustainable competitive advantage, you have an oligopoly, monopoly, chances are you're able to increase prices just over time due to uh, limited options in the competitive landscape. Uh, number four, are customers profitable? Uh, applies to B2B mainly. Customers with low profit margins will typically be more cost conscious than those with high margins. I think that that's probably mostly true. Um this would be case by case, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess it uh, depends if you're looking at it now or in 2021. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, how, how important is that? Is uh 2021 yeah, or is it 2023 combo? Uh, the last one here. And again, this is just his list. Uh, some of them I agree with oh, more. Yeah. Some of them I agree with less. Uh, does the quality of the product matter more than its price? In some cases, the quality of the product is of utmost importance to customers because a malfunction or longer downtime can cost much more than the product costs. Um, that's true. It's kind of like, how much value does this really create? Like, if say you have a product that saves a customer $1 million a year and it only costs them $5,000 subscription or like, you know, that's what it costs them every year to implement something that's going to create $1 million in cost savings. You can you have a lot of leverage for pricing power there because you can justify it. So the business can justify continuing to, to pay for that service over time so much easier. I used to think about this so much when I worked at Magna, like cost cutting was such a big part of, you know, their the automotive industry, right? Because like margins are so thin, you got to be operating very efficiently. And it was always just so much easier to justify new vendors if it was a net positive in cost savings, um, of course. And so you're kind of building in pricing power there as well. Yeah. And I actually, this point, it reminds me of the uh, book I, I mean, the, I listened to as an audio book, but Chip Wars that I've talked about again, uh, before on this, on the podcast. And early on when semiconductors started kind of being more and more, you know, uh, just happening in the, not necessarily in the real world just yet. It was a lot of their consumers at the time were still uh, just primarily military. While there was one company, and I forget the names, but essentially um, there was one company that was producing semiconductors, but they had a failure rate of 0.5%, which does not sound high, but when you're using it in military equipment, it's still too high of a failure rate. Mm -hmm. And then a competitor came in and I think reduced that by multiples and of course that competitor started gaining very rapidly market share so that's a good example i don't remember exactly the pricing but i'm assuming they they may have had a slightly a premium but when you know these are critical components you can't really cheap out on it it's going to cost you more if it the failure rate is higher that's right it speaks to if it's mission critical and while you're thinking of that i thought of an another point here is 
Businesses that negate risk for customers. So again, we're talking about mostly a B2B business to business situation here. But if you have a product that negates risk for your customer, that also makes it very sticky and gives you some pricing power. So I'm thinking of like cyber here, you know, just any situation where your product heavily decreases the risk of something going wrong for your customer because risk is a much more emotional selling factor than gains. Like if you if you sell a product that helps negate risk, that should always be your talking point and your marketing material and your sales speech because that sells much more emotionally to to customers. And it goes with management teams too, right? Like what CFO or CEO is going to cut costs for something that negates risk because they don't want to be the one that is known for that huge, something going super wrong for their business. Like it's too costly uh, for them to, to negate, to not negate that risk. It's too expensive for them. So um, yeah, those types of businesses really have a lot of pricing power as well. Yeah, no, I think they're really overall good points. Like, obviously I think they're, pretty pretty accurate overall i may like you i may agree for some more than others but i think you can make a case for most of them so uh no i think it was a good list the most important part is like can can it be sustained right like can is is that this is this is all backwards looking right like can its sustainable competitive advantages allow for all of these things that we've talked about to continue to be true. Uh, I think that that's the, probably the most important question. Uh, and it speaks to the moat and then the moat speaks to the pricing power. Uh, I think they're very connected. Yeah, no, exactly. Now I'll move on to the most recent BMO survey. So the one that made the Twitter, uh, you know, there was quite a lot of talk on Twitter, at least some of the people I follow. So this one was done last month, I think maybe a few weeks ago at most. And the main headline was probably the one that people, uh, you know, saw is that Canadians think they now need 1.7 million to retire up from 1.4 million in 2020, in 2020. So that was the main headline. But first of all, I'm not sure how people came to that figure of 1.7 million because it is a survey so you have to take it with a grain of salt all how well educated are people on decumulation what do you think the number is if you're if you're asked i mean i don't i think it really varies that's the thing i don't think there's a specific number per se i think it varies uh, for you if you were asked what would what would you throw out you know you, you have just you're just doing one of these quick surveys yeah. you're not like you know x you're not spreadsheeting it out you're just thinking like what feels right uh, for, yeah, probably, I think probably around 1.5, I would say, uh, because there are strategies you can do. Um, so the, is that liquid or including your house? I would say that's liquid, whether you get that liquidity, right. you know, I think overall, yeah, I think that's a safe amount because if you take the 1.7 million figure and you just use the 4% rule, which by the way has significant drawbacks, um, essentially 4% rule is you withdraw 4% every year you retire and then you increase that um, amount just on the cost of living. 
it's basically 68000 a year, but that doesn't factor other income sources like CPP and old age security or potentially even, you know, if you have um, income from properties or things like that. So it may not sound like a lot for 68000 a year, but again, you still have these other sources that you'll have access to. And on top of that, people tend to spend less when they retire. Maybe not right away when they retire, but when they reach uh, around like mid-70s, that starts to decline for various reasons. So I think you have to, it's it's way more nuanced. That's that's what I wanted to say, yeah. True, I agree, yeah. Yeah, and the last thing, it actually goes back to the discussion we were having with the first survey is, you know, you could easily, you know, are you someone who wants to retire or someone who just wants to be financially independent or you could retire but still do some part-time consulting work or work part-time doing something that you love like I mean I've talked about it before I'd be more than happy retired and working part-time in a bike shop it wouldn't feel like a like work and I'm sure for you we've talked about that a little bit is I don't think you'll ever retire <laughs> so yeah I mean there's probably some version of it. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and when I eventually do, uh, you know, decide to sell one or both of my companies, it's like, what do I do then, right? Like, there's <laughs> probably move into that kind of permanent state of uh, semi-retired working. I, I think if I, I think I would become unwell if I started stopped working. I know that sounds so ridiculous, but it's just who I am. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've heard it before, right? I, I meet people with retirement and, you know, for some people, it's just, you know, it's a reason to get up every day and having something to do. And the last thing I'll mention about the 1.7 million figure is, you know, take it as a grain of salt because there's a big difference between 1.7 million in ATFSA and 1.7 in RSP. Or, you know, clearly I know that... Thank you. Yeah, say it again for the people yeah, in the back. Because so, that's such a good point. Yeah. And the survey did not talk about that. And clearly the TFSA has limits, you know, let's say it's probably around 100K if you were 18 when the, the account started. But if you you did well on those investments, I mean, it would be pretty, you know, not out of the... Out, not out of the reason to have someone like three, four hundred thousand dollars balance and then the rest in maybe a mix of RSP and a mix of a taxable account. So that really, you know, weighs dif- differently because the tax implications are way, way different. So I think that's something else to take into account where that one seven, one point seven million dollar figure, you know, I think it, it's just very nuanced. That's what I, my point is for that. Yeah, it is because I mean, I, I'd just be throwing out a random number here, but how much are you going to pay in tax on that over your withdrawals on an RSP versus the TFSA are all you know coming out? And, and as amassing that amount in a TFSA is a huge feat mm-hmm. given the contribution <laughs> limits. But whatever the number is, say it's a hundred, say it's five hundred k, five hundred k at retirement in a TFSA is not the same as five hundred k on money you have not paid tax on yet. Exactly, um, And so they needed to be looked at differently. Yeah. And you can really build strategies also based on that without giving 
too much in detail, but you can, you know, factor in maybe some years it makes more sense to withdraw more on your RSPs because then you'll have you'll actually have some lower income years, potentially in your 60s if you decide to delay CPP and OAS. So you can withdraw more on RSPs and then when you start withdrawing on OAS and CPP, you actually start withdrawing a bit more in your TFSA while still doing some RSP. So there's really, you know, there's a lot of ways to actually, you know, make most of the money. Um, And I do encourage people, the the book I listened to recently, uh, Retirement Income for Life, uh, definitely recommend it for anyone who wants to start planning for their retirement. Um, You may agree or disagree with some of the things in the book, that's fine, but it'll, I think, give people a better perspective on the different options they have open to them when they do retire. No, that's great. Uh, is that the last point on here? Uh, a couple more things that I found interesting with the survey. So 22% of respondents plan to retire between ages 60 and 69, with the average age being 62. Um, that's kind of what I would have expected. So nothing too yeah. crazy here, but fewer than half of respondents are confident they will have enough money to retire as planned. 74% are concerned about how inflation and rising prices will affect their finances and 59% think it will affect their retirement goals. 15% said that in addition of their of saving for retirement, they contribute to provide inheritance to their children, which that this one is very weird uh, because it's um, I'm not a lawyer tax expert, but apparently RSPs when someone passes away can be quite complex. Um, so anyways, this one's a little bit of a head scratcher. 20% of respondents would like to retire in their 50s. 80% said uh, they rely on professional financial advice. And, you know, we've been critical of professional financial advice or, uh, you know, financial planners or financial advisors. Um, I think personally, you know, it's fine if you get advice from a registered one. However, personally, I think the best kind of advisor is one that would just charge you per hour. So they put, you know, five hours in your file, they meet with you for an hour, they charge you for those five hours. I am very wary of those who charge a percentage fee in terms of your assets. Because what I've read and the stories I've heard is oftentimes people will say like, yeah, they charge me 1%. I have no idea what they do aside from putting me in mutual funds. Um, And the good thing about just paying a, for example, an hourly fee is you can see a financial planner that charges you by the hour, but you can also go see a lawyer that specializes in a specific thing that you need assistant with. They'll charge you per hour. Same thing if you need uh, someone to do your you know, do a tax assessment or tax planning, someone that specializes like that. So that's the approach that I personally like a bit more because I don't know about you. I'm not a tax expert, so I would be more than happy to see a professional tax expert to help me, you know, better plan for the future and just pay them a fair hourly rate. No, I think that that's pretty, sounds reasonable to me, especially when you're talking about like a percentage of AUM and then also what incentives are in the back of like what they're supposed to put you in. Like the worst thing you can do is hop into a big Canadian bank and say like, hey, invest my money for me because they're just going to put them put you in their own high fee management fee products like mutual funds, which are going to heavily underperform any broad-based ETF over time after fees, like without question. 
Um, like that I, you can guarantee. And so don't set yourself up for failure right away uh, out of the gate by, you know, hopping over I to mean, uh, your local bank branch. $1.7 million in asset, that's $17,000 a year in fees. So are you getting really seventeen? dollars And not to mention, you're probably going to get charged like 2.5% on a Canadian bank mutual fund. Like that's, it's despicable. Yeah, I mean, depending if you're, yeah, they're with a, a bank or not, but just, you know, I think it's important to remember, are you getting value for what you're being charged? I think that's the one, the most important question. Are you getting value for what you're being charged? Whatever it is, yeah. if you are, I guess so, but um, I'm a big fan of the hourly rate. That's my personal, <laughs> yeah. Right, because 1% might not sound a lot, like a lot, until you're like, oh, Seventeen thousand dollars for this? Like that's that's a lot more money than uh, than my little one percent uh, sounds sounds like it. Let's talk about the analogy between dieting and personal finance and investing. So I've always been very keen on keeping in shape. You know, you as well. Uh, you know, you're the only guy I know that listens to conference call uh, quarterly <laughs> earnings conference calls and rides your uh, indoor bike. Uh, I'm always making sure I'm playing sports, lifting weights, you know, cardio into the lifestyle. And for instance, it, as long as it wasn't a full blizzard, I used to bike to my office both ways, which was an 80 kilometers a week base, 52 weeks a year, um, just for my commute. Gym four to five times a week, hockey, golf all summer, you know, generally very active. This past fall, dude, I looked in the mirror and I was like, I feel fine. But I look softer than 10-ply toilet paper. And that was a tough pill to swallow. And I was like, I'm not moving enough. I'm working long hours. I got to change. I got to shred some pounds. Uh, so I reached out to a podcast listener, actually. Um, his name is Aaron. Uh, go to, if you go to his website, this man looks like a Greek god. Uh, AaronAdkinFitness.com. I, I hope he's okay with me shouting it out. Hopefully he gets a, a client from this. Eric, AaronAdkinFitness.com. Uh, my guy's absolutely dieseled. Uh, his six pack has a six pack on it. And I'm pretty sure, you know, his tricep has like four different shapes to it. Anyways, I'm, I'm texting him and I'm like, I got to drop 10 pounds for this beach trip. Uh, I can't be out here looking like a marshmallow. And so he gave me the no BS truth. Now, here, here are six things that I took away from our, our text conversation back and forth. And, uh, you know, I am not a, a personal trainer. I'm not fitness. I could be horribly uh, interpreting these, but I think, I think it's fairly legit. And then I'm going to talk about how it relates to personal finance. And have that in mind because these six things – you can kind of relate to, to finance. So here are my six things. One, there's no shortcuts or silver bullet uh, when it comes to, to dieting and fitness. Uh, number two, you have to simply achieve a caloric deficit, meaning more out than in. That Like, you, no BS to it. Number three, there are methods and strategies you can implement, but it has to go back to rule number two. Versus calories in versus calories out. Number four, everything promoting some quick scheme is very likely BS. Number five, it is very difficult. It's just hard. Like it's hard. There's the hard thing about hard things. But if you do it consistently and daily, 
you will generally get some nice habits and results will come. Number six, it takes longer than you think to get your desired outcome. And because I'm a nerd, I'm a, you know, host a finance podcast. The whole time I'm thinking, I was like, this sounds a lot like budgeting uh, and personal finance. One, no shortcuts. Two, it matter in versus out matters. Uh, you know, what you're making versus what you're spending matters. Uh, there are strategies you can implement, but it has to relate to in versus out. Number four, uh, everything promoting some get rich quick scream is BS, just like fitness. And you got to do it. You got to put in the work. Number five. And six, it takes longer than you think. And you need patience. Um, so that's the segment. That's how I'm feeling. And it's been working, by the way. Like, nice, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> like some of those six abs that used to hang around, they're they're poking out a little bit again. I think the surfing every day is definitely helping. But, uh, you know, it takes takes time and patience. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know me, I like to I like to work out. I mountain bike a lot in the summer, even fat bike in the winter or bike indoors. But I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I used to be obese when I was uh, a kid up to my mid-teens. Um, Were you really? Oh, yeah, I was, uh, I think, 5'5 five, five and 210 pounds. Yeah, and now I'm Whoa. yeah, now I'm five eleven and uh, usually around like one eighty, I would say, give or take a couple of pounds yeah, depending it's good on good fighting the, weight. Yeah, yeah, depending on the time of the day. But uh, what, how old were you when you're like, I I can't be, I I, I got to do something. I was, I think, fourteen. Yeah, and okay, you know, it's uh, you're you're a teenage boy, and um, you know, you see all your friends. Some of them start getting girlfriends yeah. and stuff, and I'm like, you know. <laughs> Little sea yeah. it's a little chunker. Yeah, want to. Yeah, at some point, I want to meet some ladies. So I that was kind of the. No, I'm not gonna lie. That was the motivation, but it didn't happen overnight. Sure. And uh, I stuck with it. I ate better, uh, a bit less. I was definitely eating too much, and I started being active more consistently. I mean, I was always. You know, even for a bigger kid, pretty athletic, good hand-eye coordination and stuff like that. But um, always had trouble working out unless it was like a sport, right? So, um, right. So it's not always easy, at least back then, living in the suburbs a little bit to, to find sports. So, um, yeah, just stick with it. I think it's my advice for anyone who's like maybe struggling to lose a little bit of weight or get in shape. Um, and I would say the seventh point is don't compare yourself with other people. Mm. Yeah, just go on your own journey. It goes for investing as well because it's really easy to get discouraged if you start. You know, um, for example, I'm not. I'm never gonna look like Dwayne Johnson. Like I, I'm fine with that, <laughs> right? No matter how I try. But I mean, I can. I don't know. Sit, a couple more yeah. earnings calls on the bike. Who yeah, knows? yeah. No, no. That's it. But I think it's same thing for investing, right? It's easy to look at someone and say, "Oh, I mean, they do like sixty thousand dividend income per year. How will I ever get to that?" Well. They started a long time ago, and you have to go through your own journey. Yeah, good put. Uh, good point. I like number seven. All of them just resonate really well, and especially just like the patience part, um, because compounding anything, especially wealth, it doesn't it doesn't come quick, and anything promising quick results is probably bullshit. Uh, and that goes for a lot of that goes for pretty much anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, anything promising, low effort, good results uh, quickly, the bullshit alarm should be ringing on 
everything in the world, uh, it should be going off. Uh, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I know, exactly. You can do things to make things easier, but it still won't be a exactly. quick, you know, fix. I mean, especially if you're trying to get healthy or eat better, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll, like, on Sunday, they'll do almost their meal prep for the whole week, right? So it's easy. They don't have yep. to try. They don't end up eating not well just because they don't have the time during the week. So there are ways to simplify things for yourself. It's like when I asked him, I'm like, okay, what what about intermittent intermittent fasting is this is this legit and he's like it is legit in a method of you consuming less calories um and that relates to number two you yeah. know calories in versus calories out so yes but it's not some magical uh you know bro science that's gonna just you know <laughs> it's not some magical bro science it is a method to achieving Rule number two, which is calories in versus calories out. Um, and it's also not easy. Like, try starving yourself for 16 hours a day. It's not easy. No, no. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Um, so, <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll last segment here. I thought it was interesting because we've talked about, um, obviously, Canadian dollar in the past, you know, Canadian home bias and so on. And we always, as Canadians, um, just compare our dollar versus USD. But... At the end of the day, it's not necessarily a good measure to just figure out the strength of the U.S. dollar. And there is something that is a bit better than that. It has limitations, um, 100%, but it is called the U.S. dollar index. If you ever hear on financial media them talking about the Dixie, which is the DXY, this is what they're actually talking about. So the U.S. dollar index is used to measure the value of the U.S. dollar against a basket of six foreign currencies. All of the currencies in the basket have different weighting. So the euro is 58%, the Japanese yen is 13.6%, British pound 11.9%, Canadian dollar 9.1%, the Swedish krona 4.2%, and the Swiss franc 3.6%. The basket only changed once, and I'm sure people may have guessed by now that it's actually it was a basket with additional currencies, which then became the euro. So obviously it changed when the the euro became a thing uh, to just include the euro and the weighting was adjusted accordingly. And the index was started in 1973. It has a base of 100 and the values are related relative to that base. It reached a high of 165 in 1984 and a low of 70 in 2007. For those old enough to remember, I know we have some young, younger listeners. Well, the Canadian dollar was actually, I think it was stronger for most of 2007 than the U.S. dollar. Um, so that's a good indication there. And it typically tends to range in the 90 to 110. That's typically what they'll, they'll be sitting at. And right now it's sitting slightly above 100. And then if the index is rising, it means the U.S. dollar is gaining in strength versus the basket of currencies. And if it's dropping, it means the opposite. So it's weakening. Uh, to me, it's just an interesting data point. It does have its limitations here, uh, but something to keep in mind, uh, especially for businesses that have a lot of exposure to outside U.S. currency, I would say. It's something just to, you know, not investment thesis changing, but just something to be aware of, especially when you start hearing, you know, these conference calls with management saying, well, yeah, it only increased 2%, but if you remove currency fluctuation, it was actually 8%, which we're hearing quite a bit. And the biggest drawback of this, I think people may have kind of figured it out, is 
it's just it's missing some pretty major currencies in there. So the the Chinese yuan, for example, uh, it may be added eventually, but I think the reasoning behind it was that they tried to have a basket with currencies that trade a lot with the U.S. dollar. So big trading partners. So that's why it would make sense that the Canadian dollar is in there and not something like the Australian dollar, for example. These It reminds me of these companies who are global and have like, they do business in so many different currencies. It's like, what is that? What does that finance department look like? Like, that must be the worst yeah. job ever, like putting together their quarterly. It's like, um, okay, we did several billions of dollars in 76 different currencies. Uh, get to work. Yeah, well, the largest companies, right? That's what they deal with. Um, but it's always interesting when you have companies that, like a Mercado Libre, which yeah, reports, yeah, that's you, you know, they basically all their revenues is in other currencies than the US dollar, and then they report. That are typically not very strong. No, exactly. So it's always, um, you know, I think the Dix is just a good parameter, like outside of, I know people like will probably will check pretty frequently the the exchange rates between Canadian dollar and the Mm -hmm. US just because, you know, you may be investing in US stocks and so on. But I think it's, if you do that, you know, at the same time, just double check the index. It'll give you a good idea whether right. it's, you know, is it the Canadian dollar only or is it actually the U.S. dollar weakening against a broader set of currencies? Well, that's a good point. It's something that I don't really ever look at, but you're right. I think like traditionally, especially if I'm on a trip, I'm always just looking at the CAD conversion and, you know, I never look at like how the strength of it compared to other major currencies. Like it, I guess it's just something I never look at, but something that I probably should look at more. Um, And so maybe I'm going to start implementing this. Yeah, no, that's it. So uh, that was my last segment. Not sure if you wanted to add anything else. Um, No, let's uh, let's wrap it there. Other than a quick question of the day, Simone, is it uh, is it aliens? Is it aliens (laughs) flying over North America? Uh, I mean, um, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, it's. um... What what is it four now? They've shot down. It was four uh, four objects, and I think three of them. Correct me if I'm wrong. Some of them have been confirmed flying without any propulsion mechanism. So they're balloons. <laughs> they were like yeah. hexagonal, yeah. or something. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I I believe there's aliens out there. I don't know if this is. This is our, our first finding of them publicly, um, but I mean mathematically, yeah. they got exist. Do do the, crunch the numbers. Oh, they I know, exist. no, I, I'm the same belief. <laughs> Even Stephen Hawking was saying, like, you know, if you look at how massive the universe is, and you know, we're only starting to scratch the surface of what we think we know about the universe, uh, probability wise, even if it's like just a tiny, tiny, tiny probability, um, you know, a grain of sand, a grain of sand compared to all the sand in the world in terms of probability, while there is most likely intelligent life somewhere in the universe, yes. And it, they haven't done anything yet, so they're probably just studying us, so just let them, in, in the, give, them, what, give, them give them what they need. Yeah, maybe they'll do a, <laughs> a third, in, like a third Independence Day, didn't they do a second one recently? 
It was like the the first one with <sighs> Will Smith. I think one? they did a second one, so maybe they can do it like switch Isn't it. Tom Cruise? No, no, Will Smith. The first sure? one. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if you were born. Oh yeah, yeah. The, for the yeah, first one, it is. Uh, it is Will Smith. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's they'll do like instead now. of Independence Day, they'll do Canada Day. <laughs> <laughs> shot over the top of Alaska. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was one day. shot in Canada, uh, I think over Yukon territories. Yukon, yeah. that's right. It was a U.S. plane, yeah. but it was part of NORAD, so, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, time will tell. Maybe by the time this comes out, we'll already know. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. We appreciate every single one of you. If you have not gone and given the show five stars, we really appreciate you do that. You go on to your podcast player Go on Spotify, hit the five stars thing. If you're on Apple, if you could also leave us a nice little review, it really helps the show and takes literally 15 seconds. You know, we we produce all of this for free. Uh, and 15 seconds is the only source of payment that we ask by you going on and hitting that review button and writing something nice. Um, and, you know, we, we it'll legitimately help us grow the show. So thank you very much. If you have not gone to stratosphere.io, you can get 15% off a individual plan. It really helps you manage and stay on top of all the positions that you you have, especially on the new dashboard feature. It is a beautiful thing. You can get 15% off with code TCI. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.